Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. The title of today's podcast is The Help That Hurts and the Hurt That Helps, Knowing How to Help When Others Are in Need. Years ago, there was a saying that came out of family psychiatry, especially in working with families of young adults with severe psychological disorders. It went like this. When it comes to parents, there's the help that hurts and the hurt that helps, meaning that it's very difficult to know how much we can really help when loved ones are in need or in trouble, especially when they are teens or adults, and how much we need to allow them to find their own way. In this episode, we'll be talking about helping those at home with us. Also, we'll be talking about helping people in our community who need help. When there is acute need, what is the help that hurts? Sometimes we find ourselves giving opinions, advice, and even making judgments when others need help. Other times we may, we may not want someone close to us to go through a painful experience simply because we are too afraid of the outcome for ourselves. The ways we help and try to help during this COVID-19 crisis can be finely tuned if we pay closer attention to compassion, sympathy, control, and empathy. Okay, Polly, so this is a big title and we've got like a pandemic that we're all facing right now. And so let's begin talking about when there's an acute need, what is the help that hurts? Okay, Eleanor, I'm happy to do that, but let's remind our listeners that we have not recorded a podcast during this COVID-19 crisis until today. The last time we recorded podcasts, which listeners may listen to since they're being posted still, they may listen to those during this time of crisis. But the last time we recorded, we were just entering into this period of time. There really wasn't yet the emphasis on social distancing, at least here in Vermont. And you weren't sure you were going to be staying in Vermont. You thought you might be going back to New York. And so a lot of things have changed for us since we recorded the last podcast. I want to be sure that our listeners know that you are staying now in Vermont. They may be hearing from you more. Jill Abelock, who's my other co-host, won't be sitting in with me because she lives in another place and she's not traveling long distances to do any kind of non-necessary work. So you and I are here on the mountain together and we'll be doing the podcasts. And so I'm just kind of welcoming you back to Thank the podcast. You, yeah. And people will recognize your voice yes. and recognize the way you and I are together, <laughs> right? Yes, yes, yes. 
Well, it is a gift to, to be here rather than my, my city, which is New York City. Which is suffering yeah. terribly, yes. terribly yes. during this time. Yes. So, you know, you ask, well, when people are in acute need, you know, what what is the help that hurts? Let's Let's take a step back and say that, first of all, let's talk for a moment about the fact that during this time of the COVID virus, I find that there are a lot of people who want to help. You know, there are people that you hear from online. There are people that are in your community. There are people that are shopping with you and want to help by putting on a mask or social distancing themselves. And so I know that there is a big motivation to help. And I think we should speak about that just for a moment before we get into fine-tuning it to how can you really help versus how do you hurt people when you're trying to help them and it's not working. I think you've probably noticed and you've talked with me about it that there are many organizations, there are many teachers, there are many spiritual practitioners, psychologists and others who are posting things online and who are trying to reach out in this time of In an need. enormous way. <laughs> in a very big way. So there's way more than we could take in. Zoom is now a way of life. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's way more than we can take exactly, in. Exactly, yeah. And then also, you know, at the Zen Center up the road, somebody is sewing cloth masks, and um, there are people, you know, making food for other people. If, if somebody is ill, uh, there are people who are trying to help in other ways. So I wanted to point that out at the beginning because I, I think it's important for all of us to recognize that we all have a natural compassion. Many people think that compassion is something you have to develop. But, you know, it takes only a moment to realize that when you are born, you're a little itty-bitty infant and you come out of your mother, and she holds you up, and you look at her face, the first thing you want to do is to get her attention in a way that actually helps you. You want to see that she's happy, that she's calm, that she's paying attention. And so you have a natural ability to tune yourself emotionally to your mother because you need her when you're born. And so in that early period of life, when you've left the womb and you haven't yet learned any language, any culture, anything about your family, you know how to communicate compassionately with your mother so that she can pay attention to you. And that kind of compassion, it is really your ability to see when she needs help. And you're going to try to cheer her up, get her interest, and so on, as an itty-bitty infant. And we also know from many, you know, children that are born prematurely, twins born prematurely, or even twins we can see in utero, little itty-bitty babies comforting each other, stroking each other's arms and legs and so on. So that compassion for somebody else's suffering is built in. It is not something that you have to develop. In fact, you have to ignore it if you don't want to use it. Like if you walk by somebody who is suffering, or even if you notice, like, 
you know, the other day there was a mouse, well, there were two young mice trapped in, uh, in the basement here, and they were squeaking, and they were not able to get out of the trap. And the man that had come to repair the furnace heard the squeaking, and it upset him so much that he looked for them to see where they were and, set, and told us then, you know, you're going to have to bring them outside and they won't be able to get out of that trap. They're going to have to die outside. And so that suffering of those animals aroused his natural compassion, even though he was here to fix the furnace. So I want to make a point of that because many people don't recognize it. They don't know that compassion is natural. It's built in for everybody because our survival depended on our ability to help. Mm -hmm. And we help by bringing emotional calm and peace and accompanying our mothers when they're in times of distress so that they feel better. And we do that with others as well. Now, that natural compassion can get corrupted, distorted. It can get all kinds of problems as you go on developing. But if you know it's actually built into you, and if you watch when you're walking past someone who's suffering, you will notice that you have a strong motivation to help. And you have to turn it off to walk by. Like if someone's begging, begging on the sidewalk, you actually have to turn your head and determine you're going to walk by rather than give them some money. So, you know, that's the first thing I wanted to point out. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I do, I do. Yeah. I'm also thinking that with all of so many of the teachers and the different individuals who are doing free online classes or Zooms or whatever is is to be able to give a mirror with greater empathy Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what we're all facing and Mm -hmm. that we're all in this together Mm -hmm. and that we all need each other. So their natural compassion is aroused. Yes, yes. it's it's an act of generosity and also the fact that lifting all the financial restrictions so that people can have Mm -hmm. free access to Mm -hmm. it is is really very special and has been very helpful to a lot of people. So, you know, that's that's a kind of gesture that someone can make who has the capacity to reach a lot of people. But then there's also the gesture of helping somebody in the immediate environment. Right, right. And uh, like Thich Nhat Hanh has taught, when you walk into a room, when you walk through the doorway, look up, look around, see if something needs to be helped at that moment, you have the capacity to help. So on that level, we're all compassionate, we all have the capacity to help, and we're born with it. I like to say that we all have the capacity for compassion, but not for love. Love is a higher order frequency than compassion. Compassion is built in, love is developed. Because love requires tolerating others whom you don't like. (laughs) You know, at moments that you don't like them. (laughs) And especially when you're at home with them locked up for weeks and weeks. But so, also in the earlier podcast, in the beginning, how you were explaining to to our listeners, you know, that we all have this tendency for, you know, to have greater negativity than positivity. Yeah. Oh, or yeah. that also, you know, the relationship, you know, the symbiotic relationship between love and hate and yes. all of these. So this, yes. again, is another uh, yes. another aspect of, of wisdom. So, yeah. And so one of the reasons why it's really challenging to help the people that are in your household is that you both love and hate them. That's right. And also that whatever happens to them will also happen to you. 
And so you, your own welfare is very much connected to wanting good outcomes. Let's just take a step back then and say, well, what is compassion? And then I will talk about when people are in acute need, what is the help that hurts? Because that is perhaps one of the wisest ways that you can change your compassion from what is called idiot compassion by some Buddhist teachers to skillful compassion or wise compassion because idiot compassion is a knee-jerk reaction of trying to help when, when that's not what's needed or you're trying to help in some way that doesn't attune to the other person. You know, you're just doing stuff that they actually are not helped by. First, the nature of compassion itself, and I'm sure we talked about this in earlier podcasts, the Sanskrit word is karuna for compassion. It's K-A-R-U-N-A. And it refers to a low moan like this. Oh, like that. Oh, and that's the kind of moan that you make naturally when you see somebody suffering. Oh, so karuna is actually the sound that comes out when you see suffering. Uh, The English word compassion is also useful because com means with and passion here means suffering. Mm -hmm. So you're, you suffer with. Jesus recommended that when you see someone suffering, you walk with that person. So you suffer with that person. You go alongside of that person and you experience the suffering of that person and don't shield yourself from it. And in that way, you walk in that person's shoes and you can actually help because you get the full sense of what the person needs by walking with them. Mm -hmm. So both of these words for compassion, karuna and the word compassion, uh, they both teach aspects of wise compassion. You know, that you have a natural sound that comes forth when you see someone suffering, and it is the sound of suffering with them, and you also walk with them if you are actually compassionate. Just the word itself is helpful. And then the issue about what gets in the way of wise compassion. And so that's where we can get to the the problem of helping people when they're in acute need. Um, I wonder if you have yourself been through experiences in your own life where you have been either very ill or you know, you're in a, some of a, a circumstances you hadn't anticipated or you've had the experience of a sudden loss, like a divorce or, you know, something that where you're in pain. Um, and if other people, if you notice that there are people that could help and then people whose help actually seem to make things worse, you know, if you remember any of that yourself. Well, it's always been extraordinary when you are with people who allow you to be where you are and actually walk with you rather than trying to go in to fix you or make you do things that they think are right. You right. know, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, uh, it's a, like a higher state of being when you can have that kind of, um, uh, kind of camaraderie with another in, in the same way that it takes, it takes, kind of skillful means to truly be able to listen to another person, Mm -hmm. to listen 
to hear what it is that they need rather than again trying to fix them or just make the problem go away or you get caught a lot of times unconsciously with all your control strategies as well mm-hmm. because yeah. it just causes you suffering and you don't know how to handle the suffering and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, it, the artist in me deals with human suffering and um, in, the, in the larger picture. And, you know, and again, trying to just, you know, work with awakening to that. You know, again, mm-hmm. walking with rather mm-hmm. than to try to come mm-hmm. up with, you know, you know more beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, to, mm-hmm. but just actually be able to feel, to be in the integrity of emotional integrity around what's going on, truly going on in another person's life. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about the snow globe. You know, that our own subjectivity is pretty dense. It's yes. pretty thick. Yes. Each of us has yeah. a subjective world that is complex, that involves our own perspectives, right, our own right, feelings, right. and our own body right. sensations right. and so on. So it is hard to step right. into somebody else's right. world. Right. And I know in my own life, probably the greatest and acute suffering that I had was both the long time of my husband's decline through early onset Alzheimer's because it was a 10-year period. So it was a very long time. But also the moments when it became very clear to me what was wrong with him and the fact that we'd lost all of the money that we had and the fact that it was going to be impossible for him to deal with his circumstances, which included his long-term care insurance company suing him for, they thought, lying on his application. Really, he did not know at that point that he had dementia. Uh, He was quite young when he applied for long-term care, and he didn't know he had dementia, but he fell quickly into a pretty difficult state within about four years later because the dementia was actually beginning, but he didn't know it. Those Those, are extreme circumstances. Well, they were very extreme, yeah. 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 And so my, my difficulties were complex. They were really specific because he had early onset Alzheimer's, which is a genetic condition. And many people approached me with, I think, goodwill, They wanted to be helpful, but instead of asking me, what can I do to help you, they gave me advice. Like, have you heard about this diet that people can be on and that will cure their Alzheimer's? Or do you know about this shaman? Or do you know about these brain gym exercises? Have you heard this? Did you read about this research? Now, I knew they were trying to be helpful. So that, that was one approach that was not helpful, which was giving me advice and sort of bits and pieces of ideas that really weren't applicable to what I was going through. And then the other thing that wasn't helpful, which is, again, very human, was they, be, they would come up and, and, you know, when I either they knew that Ed was sick or, or they'd find out and they would say, Oh, that's so terrible. My mother, my grandmother, or you know, right, my mother, right. my grandmother had Alzheimer's. They now go this, right into the room. Yeah, and yeah. this was my husband, who was my equal. Right. It's a very different situation than if your mother or your father. Right, yes. And and they would always say, you know, my my so and so had Alzheimer's, and I'd say, well, when did they get sick? Oh, when they were eighty three. Well, that's not Alzheimer's, technically speaking. That's dementia because they're past the age of 65. Alzheimer's specifically was named for dementia before the age of 65. Ed was 54 when it started. Mm. So, you know, people would come, they would say things, 
They would want to cheer me up or they would want to be sympathetic, but they didn't walk with me. There were only a few who did. And the few people who did walk with me actually were people who came to help Ed, to stay with us, to help in the midst of the crisis and stay with him at times when I had to leave or when I needed to go on retreat or whatever. Those people who actually did walk with me and walk with him, they saw the complexity of it. They could see that there wasn't a solution. It was tremendously helpful to me to have a couple of people who actually sort of stayed by me through the financial collapse, through the confusion about my own life, and through the decline and erasure of Ed. It's extraordinary when that happens. It's just... Exquisite. Well, that's true compassion. Yeah. Yeah, that's true the compassion. wisdom of yeah. compassion that allows you as a human being to step into somebody yeah. else's snow globe right. and actually walk with them through a difficulty. Now, you know, in my many years of doing therapy, I have, of course, seen many people who've gotten a cancer diagnosis, heart disease diagnosis, Lyme's disease diagnosis, a lot of that. And in many, many of those cases, people would feel abandoned by their friends. And again, for the reasons that I was just talking about, it wasn't that the friends just didn't want to help, but the friends were full of advice, full of opinions, full of ideas, but not full of actual help. Instead of saying, you know, so what do you need right now? Or what's it like for you going through this? What's it like to get this diagnosis? You know, they would instead say, do you know about these vitamins? You know, um, my cousin had cancer and did this or that. Or, Or when I had cancer, I did this or that. And then there were a number of people that I heard about, and of course in my own situation, who just fell away completely. People who could not tolerate the complexity of the pain and suffering. So they, instead of stepping in, they stepped away. I think I began to think, in my own situation, because it lasted so long, that that's a natural human self-preservation. That if you're really, really in need, a a lot of people are not going to lend a helping hand. There was a song in one of Bob Dylan's, it was one of these songs of of, uh, basement tapes or, you know, unpublished tapes. And it might have been in Mississippi, but some people will lend a hand and some won't. Last night I knew you, and tonight I don't. Mm. And I actually would sing those lines to myself because I knew that there were people who would not lend a hand, and I thought I knew them, but I really didn't. I think, again, this is not an uncommon response to somebody else's acute suffering. So to talk about that then with family members or with people that we care tremendously about our children, our parents, people that we might be living with, you know, uh, with the COVID virus right now, a lot of families are kind of stuck with their adult children. I mean, not to say it like that, but they hadn't anticipated having adult children move home. Maybe siblings are at home. Maybe, you know, then you've got the adults who are at home with their your, their young children also. I think It's an unprecedented moment in the yes. lives of all of us. Yes, it absolutely to, is. To, it's never been anything we've ne- like we've this. We've never yeah. even imagined anything like this. Yeah, and so it's yeah. it's like we're, we're all in this situation we had not anticipated. Right. I, I'm not going to talk so much about young children and their parents because I think that that's a different issue, how to take care of young children 
when they're at home and at odds with each other or at odds with you. But I want to talk more about the teenage children staying at home or the adult children staying at home or other adults that are in your household because I think that it's often hardest to know how to help people who have their own autonomy. You know, and their own snow globe is pretty worked out. And it's nice when you have a big house. I mean, being here with you in your magnificent home here on the mountain versus, you know, my colleagues in New York in their small studios or their one bedrooms or, you know, and now they have family with them and, yeah. and stuff. And it's much harder, you know, living in such close Yeah, waters. if you can uh, spread out, yeah, it's easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, yeah. we have an advantage yeah. here to be able to spread out each it's of wonderful. us doing our yeah. work yes, in, in yes. our own little niche and then yes. come together for yes. dinner. But that even so, I mean, in our household, there are times where it's very hard to see exactly how to be of help or of use to somebody who has a particular fear or a particular um, uh, anxiety. Yes. So, um, you know, so when you have an adult around who is really thrown by what's happening with the virus or maybe thrown by what the government is doing or thrown by the fears of the future of reduced um, rights, freedoms, uh, or reduced income, or losing a job, or in a situation where the job is already gone. I mean, these are very common situations that lots of families are in. It's not- And to not have a sense of the future. Yes. I mean, no, to, yeah, yeah. To exactly. suddenly, you want to plan, or you want to right. you want to work with healthy strategies that you think that could be helpful, but right. you can't really even do that now, right? Because it's day by day. And so many young people don't know also if the future that they have planned for themselves can unfold. I I know a number of families where their children are just finishing high school, so they're not really graduating, but they've already been accepted to college, but the college may not be opening in the fall. That's right. That's and so right. they don't know exactly how their education is going to develop yeah. or where their career is going to go, or even if that career is going to, be possible. Is going to last, yeah. yeah, you know, whether there'll be that career mm-hmm. in the future. So there's, there's so much uncertainty and there's so much anxiety. And then when you have young adults and teens who really should be practicing their own autonomy. They should be self-governing. They should be making decisions for themselves. And they should be going off with their own peers. You know, they, they should be out there coupling up and getting into their lives and making mistakes and so on. And instead, they're stuck in the situation with their parents or their siblings or whatever. I think that's when this very fine-tuned compassion really is important it's you you really need to take your time mm. and to that's you know, a big that's a big step is taking time just to this take, is forcing yeah, us to take yeah. time well yeah you, yeah and just to sit down with yeah to try to get the picture yeah and so somebody said to me the other day you know that her grown daughter said some things to her that you know seemed really mean I mean, and really kind of brutal. And so, you know, she, of course, the mother wanted to defend herself and explain herself and say, well, I'm doing it this way because of this. Another road that you could take if you really want to help is sit down and say to the other person, help me understand why you said that to me. What is it? What's going on with you? You know, in other words, give me a picture of what's going on with you. 
so that I can walk with you a little bit in your snow globe and not simply react to you from mine. That's a wonderful aspiration. <laughs> yeah, well, and, <laughs> I mean, to be able to, yeah, you know, when you get triggered, you, you know, yes, yes. Yeah, I, no, getting yeah. triggered, you're absolutely right. 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 Getting you're, tri- yeah. triggered, you're going to yeah. go into the limbic right. system. Yeah. You're going to do the fight or flight. <laughs> right, right. You're going to promote right. yourself, defend yourself. Right. That's the typical right, thing: right. is get yeah. triggered and defend yourself, yeah. and and then leave the room or fight with the person. Right, right. But there is this other option, which is that you can. Sit down, take your time, and say, "Help me understand." You know, in other words, it's a wonderful. It's wonderful to yes, yes. You know, yes. how can I step in and get your perspective yes. on it? That doesn't mean that the problem is going to be solved, right? Or that the person is necessarily going to immediately feel better. But what it does mean is that you you will practice compassion. In that moment, you will be helping by walking with, by suffering with, by understanding and getting the picture. And that's the nature of compassion. It's that deep, oh, you know, the suffering yeah. with the other and yeah. not the trying to fix it really fast. And it's also being able to have the capacity to be present in the moment with another. And so that's actually, yeah. the being present is the mindfulness piece of it. So, you know, recently I did a class that is on my YouTube uh, channel online on what uncertainty teaches. And we're in this time of tremendous uncertainty where we cannot predict the future. And we can't really even hang on to this illusion of control. Most of the time we have an illusion we can control our lives. We don't control our lives, but we have that illusion. But right now there are so many uncertainties financial, social, psychological, physical, that we don't even have the illusion. So we're in this kind of uncertainty that if we can practice it, actually makes us focus on the present moment. And the present moment is actually the only moment we ever have. But uncertainty can help us focus right now right in this room, right what's going on in this room instead of what should I do tomorrow right. or what should I do this right. evening or how is this going to turn out or what if he never gets his job again exactly. and so on. Exactly. And I, you know, I, I'm kind of just reflecting back on in the early days when I was working with a lot of the great Rinpoches, one of the things they would often say to us is that, you know, in learning the, the spiritual tools and, and practices, which today now we refer to as mindfulness or this or that, was so that we would be more equipped for extreme times yeah just like you know when you train to be able to work with with death and dying you Mm -hmm. you prepare yourself while you're healthy and alive for that time you know and so and so now you know people are being forced to um reach for tools that can help them because the extremity is so severe well and if you prepared for it this is the time yes and for those of us who have worked with this for years and years now we're all kind of in the front lines and trying to do whatever we can do to be of help but yes so you could you could sort of see that if you've been preparing by becoming mindful by becoming let's say Um, you're hoping that you're a wiser person you're hoping that your spiritual practice has helped you now here's the test 
can you sit down with your adult child who is so agitated and actually say, help me understand what it's like to be you right now without trying to fix it, without trying to jump ahead, but just to exercise that same compassion you had before you could speak when you looked at your mother's face and you were like, help me understand what you need, mommy, so that you could feel better and you can help me then. So it's like that natural infant compassion in looking into the face of the mother is I need to help you so you can then take care of me. If you are so distressed, you can't take care of me. So we have this natural compassion. And you have and that, we, that you, you know, you can also see how that the, 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 um, the microcosm of that, you know, that starting, you know, like in the family, then stepping, you know, back and you see in the, in the larger world, if we had more of that in the larger world, those mirrors mm-hmm. to help people cope, mm-hmm. that's a great kindness. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it has, yes. and it just has so much, it, it potentiates life itself. Well, and it also does this other thing that it that I think people are often looking for wisdom. They're hoping to find something to guide them. Right. And um, one thing that we can talk about in terms of the other side, so we've talked a little bit about the help that hurts. The help that hurts is giving advice, right, right. problem solving, opinions, your own story, too quickly. In other words, jumping in to your snow globe and saying, here's how it is for me, rather than actually trying to understand what's going on in the other person's experience. Um, So that's the help that hurts. And that's the kind of help that parents are inclined to give their grown children. And it's the kind of help also that many times our good friends are inclined to to give us. Yeah, we we keep slipping. (laughs) We keep because we want things to turn out well, and 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 we believe we can control those things by predicting various things. Exactly. So on the other hand, though, there's the hurt that helps. That's where I think we really can even gain a greater wisdom. You may not know this, but. Um, I know this being a developmental psychologist. A lot of my early life was spent as an academic and a developmental psychologist. And theorists from Piaget to Kohlberg to Valiant to many names I could mention are very clear that human beings change as a result of crisis. They do not change when things are pretty smooth going. Developmentally, when we're young, each new physical development creates a crisis. Like when you stand up to walk and you've only been lying down as an infant, that's a crisis. You have to reorganize your whole world. And for a while, you regress when you're learning to walk. You become more like a baby again because you're so scared of that crisis that your organism has had you stand up and now you're organized a completely different way. In adult life, People do not change unless they have some kind of crisis. And it can be a small crisis, like lose your job, your house burns down. Those are relatively small crises. Or it can be a big crisis. You get cancer, you have a divorce that's unexpected, you're in a natural disaster, your spouse dies, your child dies. There there are many big crises that are a part of adult life, even if we have a very normal adult life. And those crises, which are very painful, actually open a door for development. 
And it seems like that's the only way adults actually do learn how to change. And they change when they're forced to change. Otherwise, they habituate in their habits as they move along. So when someone is in a real difficulty, there is a real possibility for change. And as you see in yourself as in others, if you allow that that difficulty is bearable and tolerable, Mm -hmm. then you learn something from it. Just as in this time of uncertainty, Mm -hmm. if you can allow that uncertainty itself is a teacher is not a problem yeah it's a teacher mm-hmm. ultimately death is the biggest teacher that we face because we know we're going to die mm-hmm. we don't many of us know exactly how but we know and then when we actually go into dying or we help someone else's die who is dying if we can do that with that interest in what is opening here this is a crisis And this crisis will open doors. It doesn't just close doors. So every time you go through a crisis in life, there's a door that opens. There are many doors, actually, that open into something new. And so in this crisis that we're going through, not exactly all coordinated, because different people are having different kinds of (laughs) points of view and so on, maybe one thing that we can recognize is that uncertainty can teach us to remain in the present moment instead of trying to predict the future, instead of being afraid of what is next. Because uncertainty, moment to moment to moment, 99.9 something or other percent (laughs) of the time, almost 100%, the present moment is fine. Nothing bad is happening. But we we have a narrative, we run that narrative, and then instead of being able to tolerate the present moment, we become freaked out by it. And you know, many times with our loved ones also, uh, because an adult child has a certain kind of question or has a certain point of view or has really strong feelings, even despairing feelings, we actually don't want that present moment. We don't wanna go into that. We don't wanna say, help me understand why you feel suicidal right now. We want to say, oh, don't commit suicide. Oh, your your life is going to be great again, and so on. But the most compassionate thing we can do is step in and say, tell me more. Help me understand what it's like for you. And then that individual who's suffering acutely might be able to open that door and see what the wisdom is that is essentially trying to come in as that crisis just like the crisis when you learn to walk. You know, it's like that is a new development, but you experience it as being overwhelmed with difficulties at the beginning. So again, being able to see that there is the help that can make the situation worse, and there is the hurt that actually makes your situation better, then you can come to this wisdom of helping this skillful compassion with the capacities for the, the sympathy. The sympathy is kind of the, oh, kind of feeling. And also the empathy, which is stepping in and seeing what it's like. And then the compassion, which is actually helping from the point of view of what the other person wants and needs, not from the 
emotional management point of view. Now, all of this that I'm describing is a higher state. It's very di- well, no, it's challenging. I would say yeah. I think it's learnable. I mean, I you can and hear you the and I was like, of, yes. uh, yeah, I, I can hear the voice. Yeah, of well, the it's, no, but it's very yeah. learning. No, it's yeah. very much yeah. you can learn it. You yeah. can learn it. You can learn it. You can, yes, you, can. you can learn it. Is not that yeah. difficult. Um, but yeah. in when you're triggered, when you want, when you're afraid, yeah. when you want things to turn out well for your child, you want things to turn out well for your partner. Your tendency is to give advice. Your tendency is to manage that person emotionally yes. and, and to try to leap ahead yeah. and say, well, if you do this, then it will turn out this right. way. And yet that tendency will get in the way yeah. of your real ability, yeah. your own ability to help through yeah. compassion. And also I think it's compassionate too when you, you know, when you don't have, say, more advanced skills, but you, you know enough to not, you know, I'll project everything on the other. In other words, to, to, to make yourself feel better, you don't have to make somebody else wrong. You can just take the space you need or, or let there be space between you. Or just not shut up. Be, you know, just, yes, just to shut up to in a particular in, moment. Yes, yes, right. Yes, not yes, to be reactive, but yeah. rather just yeah. to try to honor the spaciousness that's needed. And, you know, I think as someone who's in the creative field, we've always, you know, I mean... Problems have been always our opportunities, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. we've learned so much through when we come up against, you know, difficulty or when we make mistakes and we, you know, have to regroup and stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of sandpaper that helps us to become better in our in our skills creatively, but also spiritually. Well, yeah. Suffering is our greatest teacher. Well, it is. It is. It's the it's the first noble truth. It's the, it's the door you go through. Yes, exactly. And if you can keep in mind that most of our most of our framework as humans is to notice what's wrong, right. what's not working. Right. Negativity. Negative negativity, negative emotions. Right. So then the things that go wrong right. are openings. Right. But we really don't like them. Right. We want the pleasures, Excellent. we want the, yes. the calmness and yes. so on. Yes. Um, so, you know, in in keeping in mind the help that hurts and the hurt that helps, even right. those phrases, right. you can actually hone your helping skills. And I wanted to close with just a little bit about this story from Tolstoy, from Tolstoy yes. called The Three Questions. Yes. Now, different people have illustrated this story and put it out there. I think it's in a wonderful story. I think it does come from some folk tales, from mm-hmm. my understanding, mm-hmm. from some Russian folk tales. But I'm just going to say what the beginning of the story is and then the end of it. Mm-hmm. So... It feels very appropriate for right now. Oh, it's very much yeah, about yeah, helping yeah. in the present yeah. moment. Mm-hmm. So um, it said it once occurred to a certain king that if he always knew the right time to begin everything, if he knew who were the right people to listen to and whom to avoid, and above all, if he always knew what was the most important thing to do, he would never fail in anything he might undertake. Mm-hmm. And I think that that king is like all of us. We right. Do, we exactly. do want to know. We, yes, exactly. Yeah, and we would like yes. somebody to yeah. tell us right. what is the most right. important thing yeah. we can do and right when now. Can we, you know, yeah. When can we lift this? this yeah, <laughs> when can we get out of this? Right. What's the most? And who are the people to listen to? And right, who are the right, ones right, to avoid? Right. Yes. And, and how should I make these decisions? Right. Now, the story, of course, sets up something very dramatic. And you can look it up and, and, uh-huh. and find it yourself. And you will find that the story itself will teach you a great deal, but I'm only going to give you the conclusion, so you know you will have to find the sort of 
what's in between, the beginning and the end of the story, mm-hmm. but it is the end of the story that makes the point that we're trying to make in this podcast. And do you have a title to the Tolstoy piece? It's called The, the Three Questions. The Three Questions. The Three okay. Questions. Yes. And so the three questions are, who are the most important people, I think is the way it's put. Who are the most important people? What is What is the most important thing to do? And what can you undertake that will never fail? Okay, okay. Yes. So it's formulated as these three questions. So finally, at the end of the story, so the king, disguised essentially as an ordinary man, goes to see a very wise hermit. He tries first to find out from the scientists and the academics and the religious people what the answers are to his three questions. And he's, as he hears their answers, he knows that they really don't know the answers to these questions. And so at long last, he decides to go see this hermit who lives out in the woods, who never comes out into the town. And so he goes to see the hermit, and the king is not dressed as himself. He's dressed as an ordinary person. And he goes through a process with the hermit. And at the end, he actually doesn't think that his questions have been answered. So he goes back to the hermit and he says, you know, I'm, I've, you know I, I've learned a lot from you, but I came to ask you these three questions and, you know, I would like to know the answers. And the hermit says he's already answered them. But then he summarizes, remember then, there is only one time that is important, now. It is the most important time because it is the only time when we have any power. The most necessary person is the one with whom you are, for no man knows whether he will ever have dealings with anyone else again. And the most important affair is to do that person good, because for that purpose alone were you sent into this life. So, you know, it's a very beautiful teaching on dependent arising. And you can talk about dependent arising in some complex way from a Buddhist point of view. You can talk about causes and conditions and that we are in this present moment and connecting out to all of the causes and conditions in the universe. But then if you just look at it from this simple point of view, right now, that is the most important time always. It's the only time when you have any power. And the most important person, the person you are with. The most important thing is to do something good for that person, because you may never be with another person again. And the reason you are here is to do good. So instead of worrying about what's happening on the other side of the world, what's going to happen with climate change, whether you've done your mask in the right way, moment by moment by moment, if all of us could actually, in the present moment, help the people that we're with, listen to what's going on with them, and recognize that the hurt that they are feeling is a door opening, then this could go out through the world in a way that's beneficial to all beings. It's a wonderful way of thinking about a a peaceful way of facing what we're facing right now. Right, and Tolstoy really had it down in this story. I strongly recommend people actually reading the story. That's a wonderful story, Polly. Thank you for sharing that with us. And it's a wonderful note to end on as well. Yeah, I, I feel that even though this is such an uncertain time, there is a promise in it. 
and the promise is connected to the present moment. Exactly. And to the door build has your, be, yes, build your house on the present right. moment, yes. not on the future. Yes. And yes. that door has opened. Yes. 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 Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you, Polly. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.